It's wonderful to be back. It really is. Um, we have a video for you uh, just to give you a snapshot of the trip from Ecuador. And, uh, but it, it was a, a wonderful time, but it is, it is so good to be, to be back with you. Really, uh, we missed you very much. Um, you know, as a kid, I used to think knowing the future would really be cool. Uh, I'd read the horoscope. I'd see the sign about the palm reader, and I thought, man, this would really be incredibly helpful if I could just know what was coming. And you could plan better, and you could really get excited about it. And this would, It would really take out a lot of the mystery of life. Well, you don't have to live long until you start thinking, I don't know that I really want to know the future. You know, you, you encounter some difficulties. It, it, it's great for the joys and everything, and you're excited about what might be coming good. But, but all of a sudden you start thinking, well, you face some trials, you face some struggles and hardships, and you're like, I don't think I want to know the future. I mean, can you imagine the burden of knowing the trials that you're going to face in this life? Or if you were to know how you would die and when you would die? I mean, can you imagine the weight that would be bearing on you? It'd be too great for me. And yet as we approach this week, this is exactly what Jesus Christ faced. He knew from eternity what lay before him. He understood it. He embraced it. I mean, can you imagine the weight? You know, Alexander McLaren, uh, that great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, he said this, if the anticipation of suffering is the multiplication of sorrow, how much more must have his been multiplied throughout his life? From eternity, he sees what he would face. Had to be incredible. This Palm Sunday, of course, it's traditionally called Palm Sunday, the week prior to Easter, because when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they were thinking he's coming, riding on a donkey, which associated them, which associated him with King David, establishing the kingdom. They're waving palm branches because he's the coming king. Now, they would be greatly surprised at the end of the week. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew what lay before him. I just want to look today at these few short verses, and really 18 to 22 is where I'm going to bear down. And look at Jesus, really called the man of sorrows. Like Leon Morris, a modern-day commentator, said, his vocation was to suffer. And he suffered for us. He suffered greatly for us. And my, my desire for you is not to fill your mind with facts, but, but, but to fill your mind with the truth of what he came to do so that it would create a heart of worship in you. I, I, don't, I don't have all these application points at the end. I, I want you more meditative, more contemplative, more, more thinking. I'm praying that this week you'll actually set aside time to, to give some thoughtful reflection on Christ and what he did. And, and, what, and the application that flows out of that I will accept. But, 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 but I, I want you just to be thinking about the nature of, of the mind of our Lord as he approached this week of his life. So if you will, read with me in Luke uh, chapter 9. I think I'm going to read 18 through 27, but as I said, I'm going to drill down kind of in this first five verses. Luke 9, 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. 
Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is taking this quick assessment of the perceptions of the people. He's not looking for a bunch of attaboys. He's not looking for a pat on the back. The crowds were massive following him. These crowds had both seen and heard of the tremendous miracles he had been doing. Just in the text prior to ours, he had fed 5,000 men. Now, if these men brought along their wives and maybe a child or two, he fed with a few loaves and fishes, I don't know, 15, 20, 25,000 people from a few fish and loaves. I mean, can you imagine the throngs behind him, following him, excited? He heals us, he feeds us, he takes care of us. This is good for us. This is really good. And so they're, they're behind him. And so he turns and says, who do they say that I am? Who do they perceive me to be? Now, of course, they give the answers. Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. Matthew's gospel says maybe Jeremiah. Now, now th- this is pretty significant. Even in John's gospel, in chapter 6, verse 11, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign of the feeding that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, about the prophet that Moses speaks about, this this Messiah, this great prophet coming. Well, they thought highly of Jesus. I mean, they did. They're calling him John the Baptist. That's significant. John had died in the previous chapter. So if he's John, that's that's a resurrection. He had to come back to life. Or Elijah, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind to God. Or Jeremiah, he had been dead for hundreds of years. So they had a very high view of Jesus. I mean, they they knew he was not an ordinary man. He was not even extraordinary. He was supernatural at some level. So I I think they had this, this kind of lofty view of Jesus, but did they get it? Did they understand why he came? Did they understand his purpose and his mission? They attributed to him great power, clearly. They attributed to him, even he could have been one who was resurrected. But did they get the message? Did they get the plan of God in Christ? What do you think? Well, let me ask you even more. Who do you say that he is? I mean, particularly for the non-Christian here, or the seeker, or perhaps you're even legitimately skeptical. I, I get that. It's, a, it's not sinful to be skeptical. I mean, you're uncertain, you're, un, you're unsure, you haven't seen it, you haven't thought about it, you haven't read a lot about it, so you're just not sure. What do you say? I, I, I mean, everybody speculates on Jesus. Uh, people make bold speculations about Jesus. 
I, I think about some, so, so if I were to poll this group, some of you may say he was a good man, he was a faithful man, he was a, uh, a wise, you know, caring, non-judgmental, bringing a message of peace. Gandhi, the great Indian leader, would have attributed this to Jesus. You know, Gandhi studied the scriptures. He studied the teachings of Jesus. He actually tried to live in light of the Sermon on the Mount, finding it to be the highest ethic. He didn't believe he was the Son of God, didn't believe he was the Messiah, but he truly respected him. Or even in Islam, do you realize that Islam teaches Jesus was sinless? Do you realize that they attribute miracles to Jesus? They find him to be a prophet. Not the greatest prophet, not the Son of God, not the Messiah of the world, but they do accord him a degree of honor. Some are more mytho- you know, they're more mystical about Jesus. Perhaps they're kind of, uh, they, they look at Jesus as, well, he was a historical man. Few disagree to the historical veracity of the existence of Christ. What they do, though, is they say, well, the apostles are so enamored with him that when they wrote down these stories about him, they were just overwhelmed with their love for him, and they kind of inflated the stories a bit. How do you, what do you view, though? How do you view Jesus? What is your opinion? Do you have admiration? Do you have respect? What would you say? Is that enough? It, it, does he demand more? Can I be so bold with you to say that that is, in fact, inadequate? Can I be so bold to say that that it is not up to you and your learning to attribute to Jesus a a certain status? Shouldn't we rather go to his words? Shouldn't we rather go to how he has described himself and, and how he's told us about his life? Shouldn't we start there to understand Jesus? C.S. Lewis, and many of you have read this quote, but it's just too perfect to pass regarding our attributing to Jesus meaning and value that is not consistent with what he said about himself. He said bold and brash things. He did. No one comes to the Father but by me. You go out that until to a pluralistic, relativistic culture that no one gets to the Father but by me. You're going to offend just about everybody. You'll probably offend Christians with that. You shouldn't but you may. Well, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That's, That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So for those of us here who are skeptical, can I ask you to reconsider? May I ask you to repent of thinking so lowly of one who is so glorious? Do you realize that the Christianity that saves... 
sees Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, who had to come and suffer for our sins. There is no salvation apart from Christ. That the Christianity that saves is for those who have grasped hold of him and his cross and follow him with their lives. That's the Christianity that saves. Now, Jesus doesn't just ask, though, about the nature of the crowds. Notice how in, in 19 or in, in 20, he says, but who do you say that I am? Now, in, in Greek, he slides the you to the front of the sentence, which is emphasizing it. In other words, he's saying, you, you. I'm speaking to just these, these followers. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? I mean, they, they knew more, right? They had seen more. They had heard more. Only they were in the boat when he calmed the sea. Only they were with the demoniac when he cleansed the demoniac. Only they were with him when he raised that little girl from the dead. Who do you say that I am? Jesus, in the previous chapter, had warned them. He said, he said the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Wow, have been given to us. What a privilege that is. We know more. We do. Even you in this room, you know more than most of the, you know more about him. So he turns to them and says, who do you say? Has it been fruitful? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter speaks for all, and the language indicates that he's really a mouthpiece now for all of them. So he's not just speaking for himself. And he says, look, look what he says. He says, you are the Christ of God, the Christ of God. The word Christ or Christos in Greek is rendered Messiah in Hebrew. So he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. God had promised to send one that would deliver and save, restore Israel and lead a people who were fallen away from God, leading them to God, restoring all of God's plans for Israel. He would be the head. He would be the king. He would lead them. And so when Peter says, you're the Christ of God, he got it. And we know he got it because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, this has not been revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. He got it. They got it. But only in part. They only got it in part. The first group, they were incorrect. The disciples, they seemed to be incomplete. They only got it in part. See, to the mind of the Jew, to the mind of Peter, they're seeing Jesus as the Messiah from God, sent to save. But he's coming to save them from first the Romans, to break the back of these wicked Gentile rulers who shouldn't be on our land, and to push them out back into the sea. That's what, that's what they were thinking. They were thinking more of a geopolitical savior, kind of a military, a nationalistic flavoring to this Messiah. They're thinking Jesus is going to come and push the Romans out, restore Israel to be the people of God, the nation above the nations, and all the people could stream to them now. So there's a lot of spiritual truth to what Peter's saying. What Peter was missing is that the road to this glorious restoration of the people of God would go through a cross. He didn't get it. They didn't get it. How do I, why do I say that? You don't see that in the text here. Well, you do if you look at Matthew. In Matthew, the same story, of Simon uh, Peter makes that comment, you're the Christ of God. And then, of course, Jesus says those immortal words, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And then Jesus goes and predicts his death, just like we have here. And then you know what Peter says? It can't be. It can't be. You can't suffer. You're the Messiah. You're going to deliver us. 
You can't suffer. And that's what earned him the rebuke. Can you imagine the stinging rebuke of Jesus Christ when he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. He just gave him the keys to the kingdom. And now he's calling him Satan and putting him behind. Why? Because Peter didn't understand the suffering. It's incredible how often we can miss that. What do you say of Jesus? What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? See, many of you will confess Jesus as Lord. You believe it. You believe that he's come from God. He's died for our sins. You believe that. But then we live this life as if Jesus is here for us to go from victory to victory to victory. We we can't understand when we struggle and when we hit trials and, and problems. You know, we want this Jesus to make life better now. We pray that he'll remove our problems now. That we want life easier. We want to get to heaven without a lot of problems. We kind of want to float over life as it's been defined in Scripture as a fallen world. We think we ought to get like the upper rail. And so we don't have to suffer like everybody else. Now, Jesus does deliver us. We ought to seek him in prayer. We ought to appeal to him for mercy. But foolish are the Christians to think that in following a Savior who was nailed to a tree, that this life is going to be without hiccup and struggle and trial. Sets us up for massive failure. I was at this, of course, you know, we went uh, to Ecuador a week prior, went to a a T4G conference uh, the first part of the week, and then I had a a follow-up second conference with some pastors. And... um, and one of the pastors got up and shared. I, I was totally didn't know. I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years. And he shared a little bit about what was going on in his life. Faithful guy, great preacher, loves the Lord, loves the church, strives to see the church built up. And he got up and shared how a couple of years ago um, his son was struck with some physical ailments that they couldn't seem to reconcile. And... Uh, And then all of a sudden, he was struck with severe mental illness to the part of wanting to take his life. Massive, they don't know, bipolar, schizophrenia. And and just round the clock, they thought they would have to institutionalize him for at least a year. And uh, that's a paradigm breaker, folks. Your 12-year-old son, boom. It's, you're dying a thousand deaths at that point. You're grieving. You're grieving. Life is now different for us. It isn't going the way I wanted. And I'm serving the Lord. I'm believing in this Lord Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God, which I firmly believe, and that is a paradigm shifter, big time. And yet he's faithfully pressing on. Why? It is humiliation, suffering before exaltation. They didn't get it. Do you understand that? Do you understand that confess Jesus Christ? To say you are the Christ of God, that that means in this life we will have trouble. He's promised that for us. Many of us don't think that. We have prosperity gospel being preached, your financial, your marital, all your problems. Many of the preachers, here's how to be a better husband, here's how to fix your family problems. I I don't deny much of the truth that is said perhaps, contained within that. But there's a paradigm that we've lost. 
And that is the follow a Savior who is nailed to a tree is going to bring us in the path of suffering. And if we're not ready for that, then we need to think, what does it mean to say you're the Christ of God? You're the Messiah of God. Well, you got the one group. They were incorrect. They didn't get it. You get the disciples. It's incomplete. So Jesus really has to answer his own questions. Who do, who do you say that I'm? He has to answer it himself. And he does answer it. You know, a lot of modern scholarship will say Jesus didn't really know what he was about. He didn't fully understand his mission. He kind of gradually picked up. That is so false. He knew who he was, he says, for the Son of Man. He references himself. Now, we've talked about this term, the Son of Man, many times studying Matthew. The Son of Man is an exalted title. I want you to know it comes from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's an exalted title. Okay, picture the scene. God is called the Ancient of Days, understandably. He's the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man comes up to God the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, your kingdom will be forever. You'll rule over all the peoples. You'll lead all the peoples. You'll establish my plan. You'll establish my purposes. You'll accomplish all of my will on this earth. That's what he's giving to this Son of Man. So to say the Son of Man has come, that's great news. But look what follows. He says, for the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. He must suffer many things. That would have been a mind blaster. That would have just taken it out and said, whoa, I don't know what you're talking about here. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. It's an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron to think Son of Man suffer. It wouldn't go together. And yet Jesus is showing us that there's a divine necessity that he died that he suffer and be killed. There's a, there's a divine necessity. I mean, can you imagine if you were a first century Jew, the Messiah has come, and he's saying, no, 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 the way that we're going is not up, but it's down. The, the, the people, and, and get this, how can the people who have been waiting for him reject him? They reject him. The people he comes to save, us, reject him. It's incredible when I think about that. Why? Why would it have to be down and not up? Why couldn't God just send the Son, bring about a great revolution, spiritual revolution, save us, and then just bring us to the Father? Why couldn't he do it? Why did it have to be through the cross? Well, I don't often do this with you, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I do ask you to turn to your Bibles, not throughout the sermon. Let's just make that clear. Romans chapter 3, and I want to read 23 to 26 with you, and I want to go slowly through it because it answers the question why he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. Look at Romans chapter 3. He says, all have sinned. That's you, and that's the person next to you, and that's the guy speaking to you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, man and woman were created to bring glory to God through their loving, joy-filled obedience to the one who had given him life. That's our goal. That's our task. That's why it's the goal of the church, to love God's glory. It's right there out of Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why do we fall short of the glory of God? Because we're living for the glory of Tom. We're living for the glory of Carol. I mean, we're living for the glory of ourselves. We do what we do because we want to do it. He says, but are justified. That means declared innocent. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now look at, what, look at how God did it. 
God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that has value to knowing what it means. It means that he's bearing the wrath of God for our sins. That if you can imagine, you're standing under a shield and fire, righteous fire is coming down <clears throat> and someone is over you and they're bearing the full vent of that heat that you should be bearing and that would torch you like a candle that that's being born and you're protected underneath that shield. That's the picture that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So what, what Paul is saying here is that, that God, that Jesus had to suffer for us so that God would be just in bringing punishment upon sin but he could be merciful to us. Now, each one of us here knows what it's like to be offended. Perhaps some of you have really been offended. Perhaps some of you have had crimes committed against you. You know what it feels like. The first thing that wells up in you, almost like a, like a knee-jerk reaction, is what do you want? You want justice. If something's been taken from you, if you've been maligned, you want justice. You want an apology. You want reimbursement. You want justice. Every single one of us, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, you know you want justice. And the reason that I can say every single person in here wants justice is because you're all made in the image of God. And that's where it's come from. And so God had, for him to be holy and righteous and just, sins could not go unpunished. It makes sense. It isn't mean-spirited of God to get a pound of flesh for our sins. You know it in your own life. The graciousness of God is seen in giving Christ as a substitute so you wouldn't have to pay for your sins. This is the nature of the Christian faith, that you wouldn't have to pay for your sins, but Jesus would bear them for us. And then God could, while being just, distribute and grant us a pardon that would draw us back to himself. Now you say, but why on a tree? Why on a cross? Well, remember... In Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Paul picks that up in Galatians and says, Jesus was the cursed one. The reason he calls him the cursed one is because back in Genesis 3, which started this whole ball of trouble we have, in Genesis 3 was the, was the sin against God. And the sin against God brought a curse. And the curse rested on man. Until when? Christ, who hung on a tree. He had to hang on a tree. Why? Because he was taking the curse that was applied to us and he's cursed so that now we're free. We're forgiven. Lives are being restored. That's why your lives, every Christian, their lives should begin to be transformed more and more to that perfect state that we're going to be when we see him face to face. Do you get it? The curse that brought man away from God and sent us into just hell, just a hellward direction of life that curse has been removed. It was placed on Christ. And now we're moving from glory to glory to glory back to where God has created us to be. He had to bear the curse. Do you understand that? So to say, I confess and say Christ is, he is the Christ of God, is to say, I need him so desperately. You, you think you may have financial issues, relational issues, psychological issues, personality issues. 
That may all be true. The greatest issue you have is that you've been separated from God and you need, you need one to take what you've done in this life and be a substitute for you. You, you need him. Every one of us do. Even those who have been believers for years, you still need them today. The gospel is still as relevant and needed by you as it was the first day. It's incredible. He's given Jesus Christ to us. So, so Jesus is staring down this week, and he's looking at Friday, and he's saying, I must go to Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 51, it says that he set his heart for Jerusalem. Incredible for us. So let me just draw some implications. I want you to think about these through the week, if you would. Some implications of what does it mean to confess that Christ the Lord. First, it means uh, it brings a dose of humility to every one of us. I mean, if this doesn't humble you, I, I don't know what would. I, I mean, to, to know that you need Christ as great as the crack addict down the street. That, that you need Christ as great as the pimp or the prostitute that even wants to be in their positions. I mean, there is, the, the, we say the expression, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What he's saying is we all need him desperately. That, that, that we don't value ourselves based upon the station in life we've achieved or the financial security that we have or the beauty that we may have. We don't, we don't base life on that. We are sinners saved by God's grace. That is unifying. That's why we want to build this church around the gospel. We all need the gospel. We want a culture of the gospel. It will eliminate pride. It doesn't matter if you're, even if you're brighter or more handsome than I am. That's wonderful. And, and hopefully you'll use those gifts for the building up of the kingdom of God. He's given them to you. What do you have that you haven't received? Why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Think about it. It should humble you, should it not? You are in desperate need of Christ to the same degree that the person is next to you. The person that you find most enviable in this church, for whatever reason, that you have them up on a pedestal, they need him as much as you do. They're no different than you. You're no different than them. John Stott wrote this about the, this cross-born humility. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It's, it's your sin I'm bearing, your cross I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe can cut us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, or we want to at least, especially in self-righteousness. That's the other thing, too. Isn't that amazing? Some of you have really progressed in sanctification, and I praise God for that. But those of you that have moved forward and you've seen the Spirit of God move you from glory to glory, rejoice with him over that. But then be humbled. That it is a gift from God. Because we can even draw pride out of our self-righteousness, which was earned for us, by the one hanging on the tree. He finishes saying, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So think about that. If you struggle with pride, arrogance, or if you envy people, because that's just reverse pride, really, look at the cross. Spend time thinking about it. All of us will stream to it, like it's the only, yeah, the only place of salvation, no matter who you are. And n number two, I would say that if you say Christ is, you are the Christ of God, 
you're saying, I'm not going to look at sin the same anymore. You know, we value sin in human terms. It's kind of innocuous. It can be inconsequential. We kind of grade it as to if it's consensual. We kind of say, it's all right. Nobody's really being hurt. Well, well, the cross seems to indicate that sin's a bit more expensive than that. So when Jesus is hanging on the tree and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, this idea of the triune God somehow, I don't know how this is, but mysteriously is separated as Jesus Christ bears sins. God turns his back on the Son. There was an eternal communion. There is now an eternal communion between the, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet for that moment, the Father turned the back on the Son because he bore our sin. So for the Christian, let's not consider it so lighthearted. How do you consider it? Does it draw you to repentance after you sin? You're going to sin. John, 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But then he says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you all of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's, that's very, very good news. Uh, another, a third thing, to say that Jesus is the Christ of God is to say, God does love me. He does love me. He really does. <clears throat> that he would send a son to die for me. I, I mean, there is divine love in the cross. There's a tremendous love. <clears throat> he did die by necessity, but don't mistake the fact that he also died because he chose to. He says in John 10, I lay my life down. I have authority to lay my life down. And he chose to lay it down in obedience to the Father and as a display of love to us. Folks, if you value yourself based upon how well you're not sinning, you're missing a big mark for how much he loves us. In 1 John 4, he says this. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God would send his only Son into the world that we might live through him. Or I think in Romans 8.32, many of you have memorized this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I mean, folks, think about God's love for you. I mean, to not draw his love from the cross and to just take it as a means of getting into heaven is to miss a beautiful thing. I mean, can you imagine? That? I, I mean, to always be thinking that we're trying to build acceptance and trying to get him to love us by what we do? I can't imagine how bad I would feel if Tommy were to come up to me and say, hey, Dad, I cut the lawn. Do you love me? Hey, Dad, I, I, I cleaned the garage, which you did, praise God. And, um, hey, do you love me more? Hey, Dad, I'm going to do this for you. Will you love me more? I mean, do you know what that would do to me as a father? It would rip my heart out. And, and here, God, we keep approaching God, somehow securing this divine love, but based upon how we're doing. Now, I, do, I am concerned about how we're living in this life. I do, and I'm going to get to that. But first, the cross. I mean, if there isn't a greater shout from heaven that I love you than to give his own son, I don't know what you can have that would declare it in greater terms. And, and then one last thing I'd have you consider is, um, and there's a, there's a hundred things that we can talk about, but one last thing is that to say to Jesus, so in your minds when I ask you, what do you think of Jesus? And if you were to say, I would say you are the Christ of God. And to say that means that he bids us to come and die. 
where we see sacrifice as gain because of the cross. It's important to understand that. Sacrifice is not gain apart from the cross. Sacrifice for sacrifice sake is no good. Sacrifice for the cross is gain. And you see that in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, the way of Jesus is, is not a paved path. It's rocky. It's, it's hilly. It's challenging. No question about it. He's given us a spirit so we will have the power to walk that road. But it is a difficult road. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. To think somehow we get the, around that, if the master's hated, the servant will be as well. Jesus said some bold and brash things. Remember this, and we heard this from John MacArthur. He made an excellent point in this conference. He says, nobody hated Jesus for what he did. I mean, he's feeding people, he's, he's healing people, he's cleansing people, he's forgetting. Nobody hates him for that. What do they hate him for? They hate him for what he said. And he said things like, no man comes to the Father but by me. He's saying things like, apart from me, you have no place with God. He, he, he's putting himself in a position, and, and he's letting us know in no uncertain terms, you and I are sinners. We are hell-bound. We have no opportunity to somehow deliver ourselves. You can even believe in reincarnation. I'll give you 100,000 lives. You won't do it. And anybody that's lived over 50, you know that. You cannot do it. He said things that are harsh. People don't like the gospel. Back Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher. I'm going to give you a polar example. He's clearly on the end of the scale. There's a continuum of hate of the gospel, right? Some really hate it. Some hate it in more of an ambivalent sense. His was more of a bit of vitriol. He said this, look at whom they worship. Look at this God whom they worship. How foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died. And then to claim that death is victory. There is foolishness, and there is foolishness. There is madness, and there is madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic deity. And he's followed by a pathetic people. I grieve for him. People will hate the gospel, and you, loving the gospel, will be hated because of the gospel. We have to see, if we say you are the Christ of God, then we have to recognize that his way, sacrifice is gain, because humiliation leads to exaltation as we now worship. But there is a road ahead, and we as the people of God need to understand that, not to create fear in any way. Jesus Christ is the first fruits, as we're going to study next week. Did you notice in the text what I passed over? Kind of a key, kind of a key verse. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. What's the rest of verse 22? And on the third day, he will be raised. That's next week. That's why we set up this week, Holy Week. I want you and I want to feel the depth and the weight of his death and what he was looking at. Thursday night we'll have uh, a, a celebration of the Lord's table, a consideration of what that last night was. Friday at 3 we'll have a service here where we're speaking about the last words of Christ to help get in our mind what is familiar to many of you, but it doesn't have the impact 
that I think it ought. If you were to see a crucifixion right now, you would be overwhelmed by it. We know it cognitively, but we need to work at understanding it at a deeper level. And then, of course, it leads us into Sunday. He must suffer. He must be raised. And I'm thankful for both of those things. I'm going to begin in prayer. And uh, I, I would ask you, especially when you consider the depth of this divine love and, and, and the way Christ has embraced it, let us pray boldly for his glory and to understand it. Let us pray corporately. Don't think of the body right now. We're together as a church. So think about the family of God. Pray briefly so that others can pray. But, but pray loudly because sometimes when you pray to the floor, I can't hear you. And if I can't hear you, I can't say amen and amen. I agree. Thank you for praying that prayer. And then an elder will close us in just a minute. Father, you are great beyond words. Thank you. Thank you for taking enemies and making them sons and daughters. May the truth of Christ embracing his cross give life to your church.